Amen. Amen. Take your Bibles, if you will, this morning and go ahead and turn to that little book of Ruth there in the Old Testament. The book of Ruth. As we come to uh, hear from God today through his word. And I do hope and pray that you have had a good week, holiday week. I know many of you had family in. Some of you were out visiting as well. But I'm grateful that you are here today and that God has an ordained purpose. We give God thanks as we celebrate this season where we have really focus on the birth of Jesus. And we're going to even talk about his life, his genealogy. We're going to just talk some about that this morning as we think of the grand scheme of God's work in our lives, how God is at work. He is at work personally. He is at work corporately. He is at work universally. We believe that. And we need to believe that as we get ready to move into the new year. We need to know that our God is on the move. That our God is at work to fulfill his agenda and his purpose for not just our lives personally, but for the church's life and also for the life of this world itself. I think you find that here in this small little book of Ruth, especially as we look at these last few verses. So as we punctuate the end of the year, we also punctuate the end of the book. And some of you are probably happy that we're finally there at the end of the book of Ruth. I saw someone last week, I went to visit them, and they were in seeing family, and they said, you know, when we were here back in November, you were preaching on Ruth. <laughs> I said, yes, sir, I was. He said, and then when we were here this uh, last Sunday, you were still preaching on Ruth. I said, that's right. He said, it takes you some time, doesn't it? To kind of move through the child. I said it does. But remember, we had a couple of Sundays where things were going on. But hey, it is a marvelous little book to just look at again to punctuate the end of the year to remind us that our God is a work. If you look at the book of Ruth and you miss the sovereignty of God, you have missed the very theme. You have missed the, what God is trying to give us as we look at that little book. It speaks to us about how our God is constantly at work. Look, look, if you will, we're going to begin in chapter 4, verse 13 of Ruth. We're going to begin there, but we're also looking now toward the, toward the genealogy, toward the family that God gives here to Ruth, to Naomi, and then ultimately to the world. So beginning in verse 13, it says, So Boaz took Ruth... She became his wife. So there you have the love story consummated. That's what we've talked about, this love story that is given to us in Scripture. Finally, after all that has happened, Ruth and Boaz, they get married. And I can't imagine, I can't imagine what kind of ceremony that was. Can you? I mean, here is Boaz who had been waiting for the right person. He's a little bit older, and Ruth is now coming to his life. They recognize God's hand is in this, that God orchestrated all of this, and there must be quite the excitement. There's quite the ceremony down at First Baptist Church of Bethlehem then. There must, it was unbelievable what was happening. It says Ruth, and she became, and she became his wife. And when he went into her, the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. And then the women said to Naomi, 
Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a close relative. And may his name be famous in Israel. And may he be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you is better to you than seven sons. And he, she has borne him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her bosom and became a nurse to him. And the neighbor women gave him a name saying, There is a son born to Naomi. And they called his name Obed. He is the father of Jesse father of David. Now this is the genealogy of Perez. Perez begat Hezron, Hezron begat Ram, and Ram begat Amenadab, and Amenadab begat Nashon, and Nashon begat Salmon, Salmon begat Boaz, and Boaz begat Obed, Obed begat Jesse, and Jesse begat David. The close of the book tells us how God has acted in this family how God is acting for his nation, his people, how God is acting for the world itself. I, I, want, I want to give you some truths as we try to close this up, as we try to wrap up this book, just some overall truths for us to ponder this morning and perhaps to lead us to a greater state of worship and service before God. First is this, as I said, our God is at work. And our God is at work in desperate situations to fulfill his plan for you and for me. Now get this. Listen to what I, I say this morning as you look at the book of Ruth. Our God is at work and he is at work in desperate situations to fulfill his plan in my life and in your life. You and I need to bank on that. That our God can work through desperate situations. May we again, think of the overall theme of this book and really the overall story. If you go back to chapter 1 and you begin reading and you see the tragedy and the bitterness of it, you probably never would have just thought we're going to get to a happy ending. Or at least I would not have. I, I, now, I know some of you say, well, haven't you read your Bible? You knew it was going to turn out this way. No, no. I've read my Bible, but I'm saying to you, if you and I had just entered into the biblical world without any type of background, we started reading in Ruth chapter 1, actually, we probably would have just put it down. Because when we read tragedy after tragedy, it's, it's kind of like Leslie will sometimes say, hey, let's go to this movie. I said, what's that movie about? She said, it's about this like tragedy and like it's all this stuff. It's real. I'm like, what? Why would I want to go see a movie about a tragedy? And she says, well, you know, it's really heartwarming. It's kind of, you know, you might. Look, I said, I got enough to cry about in life. I don't need a movie to make me cry. I mean, look, here you read chapter 1, and you're like, I'm putting this down. I don't want to hear about the tragedy of Ruth. I mean, you're into just a few verses, and all of a sudden, you've got like three deaths on your hands. I mean, this can't turn out good. well. This can't turn out well for anybody. <laughs> and then you come to verse 13 of the fourth chapter. And you read a little bit about this. And you realize that God can work in the moments of bitterness. That God can work in the most difficult and desperate situations. And God can, God can work it together in some way to bring joy and blessing 
in your life and in mine. This is the Roman 8, Romans 8, 28 truth, right? That God is so sovereign and he is so powerful that he is able to take any and every situation of our lives, the good and the bad, the happy and the difficult, and he is able to weave them together in such a way that he can produce a beautiful tapestry of praise before him. That's the God you and I serve. And you and I need to be reminded of it. Look, I, I'm not sure. Well, actually, I am pretty sure that Naomi never thought anything good would come out of this. As you read her response in chapter 1, as she goes through these moments of famine, being in a foreign land, seeing her husband die, her sons die, all those things, she, she basically said, hey, don't call me Naomi. Don't call me pleasant or sweet. You call me Mara. You nick give me that nickname because life is bitter for me. Remember she said, God, in essence, she said, God has turned against me. And there may be some of you who are here in this place today. And you may be going through some tough moments. As much as we count the blessings of the last year, and we have been incredibly blessed, we also know that there have been some difficulties that our families and our friends have faced. Every year I come to this time, right before Christmas, I sit down and I look at the list of losses that have affected our church. And when I say losses, I think about those who've experienced death in their families or with their friends. Every Christmas or so, I sit down beforehand and I look at those. Now, they are significant losses. I don't mean that the people are lost, because you know what? When a person is in Christ, he can never be lost. Never. So when I think about it, I don't say that they're lost, because my friends, my family members who've accepted Christ, I know right where they are. I didn't lose them. But there is a painful type of loss, a temporary loss of not having their presence here on this earth. And I went through, I didn't really count them all, but there were like five pages, five pages of losses that our church family had experienced in some different avenues and different ways. I think a few months ago, I, I put in uh, my tidings article that you read diligently. Why would you laugh? My tidings article, I put in there some of the names of even our church members that we had lost in a year. It was like 20 plus. So there are a lot of difficulties. There are a lot of pains that people have felt. And what we need to hear is that our God is at work, and He can work in the most desperate situations to fulfill His plan for you personally and for me personally. Remember, this is a family. I mean, he's work these are real people. He's working in Naomi's life. He's working in Ruth's life. It doesn't always feel like it. But he's working in their lives to fulfill his plan and his purpose. He knew exactly what he was going to do as he brought Boaz into their lives. And Naomi goes from bitter to better. I'm not telling you everything is just great. I'm sure she still had some losses, 
But this is a whole lot better shape than you found her in chapter 1. She was bitter, but now she's better. It says, here she is. Here she is giving care to this baby. You ever notice this ending? How you would think it would be really just more like Ruth and Boaz, right? I mean, it's the love story of Ruth and Boaz. Ruth is the one who's committed and she's come and God has provided Boaz. But actually, it's like we focus more on Naomi here at the end. It actually says that this is Naomi's redeemer. Who? I don't think it's Boaz. Boaz was the one who had redeemed the overall property and had married Ruth. But if you read this, and if I look at it correctly, it means kind of like the baby is Naomi's kinsman redeemer. The baby is the one who is redeeming Naomi's life. The baby is the one who is giving her the joy and the wonder. Well, you shouldn't be surprised. Grandbabies kind of do that, right? Some of you, you just had your grandbabies in. Some of you who are grandbabies, you just went and visited your grandparents. If God had given them health and they're still here, you get to visit with them. There's some kind of unique, weird, crazy bond between grandparents and grandchildren. When we go back to North Mississippi and I see my dad and I see my mom, I bring my kids in. They are transformed. <laughs> These are not the people I lived with coming up. <laughs> Something, some, I don't know, alien life force has taken their bodies and using it as a shell or in some way because they are not the same people. They offer my kids all types of cookies and candy. If you go into the little storeroom of my mother, she's got all kinds of little Debbies just stacked. It's not for me. Now, she's good to me. It is like the prodigal who comes home, and she does kill the fatted calf oftentimes when I go in. But there's something different about my children. And for you, you kind of know. And here... She had gone without grandchildren for 10 years in Moab. She had not seen that new life, that joy. As a matter of fact, she didn't think she'd ever see a grandchild or descendant. Remember, she had even told Ruth to go back because she said, Hey, if I were, if I were to be able to have a child now, you wouldn't be able to wait long enough to marry that child. I'm not going to have a grandchild. This is just the way it is. And now God has worked and God loves doing this kind of stuff, by the way. If you read the scripture, if you read from Genesis to Revelation, you'll find out that God loves to take the weak, the one who is underestimated, the one who has no type of uh, physical strength or physical ability, and somehow he uses that individual for his glory. Even in this Christmas story we just celebrated, what did God do? He chose a virgin. The most unlikely of characters, Mary. And he worked in her life to conceive. The Holy Spirit overshadowed her to give life in her womb. 
Our God does that. Because our God works through desperate situations. He works through times. He works through the, the weakness of individuals to bring about something that is joyful and gracious. Naomi, Naomi recognized. Can you, can you imagine? Could you imagine all the pictures she would have shown you if you showed up at her house? If, if Obed wasn't around, I bet she had pictures galore. I bet she posted them on Facebook all the time. She tweeted about them on Twitter or Twitter. <laughs> she just, she was so proud. And the women, the women said, blessed be the Lord. Notice who they're worshiping. They're worshiping the Lord because they know the Lord had to do this. Now they celebrate What's going on in Naomi's life? And they even, look, they even named the child. They said, we're going to name this child Obed, which means something like servant. We're going to name the child. We are praising the Lord for this child. God has been good. He has brought grace. He has brought goodness. He says, Ruth, I love that part. Ruth, your daughter-in-law is better than seven sons. Well, those of you... I hate to admit this, but those of you who are maybe aging parents or have had age, you know it's probably better to have a daughter at that time than it is a son, right? She's got a daughter-in-law that's been there, that's been faithful. Hold the joy. Hold the joy. Wasn't sure we'd ever get there. But there's the joy. And you may never feel like you're going to see things better. I know these holidays have hit some of you hard and you may feel like there's not going to be another joyful holiday. Through God's work, through God's power, through, through God, joy can come into your life. You can see things even better than you could have ever imagined. There have been so many stories over the years, so many people that I've ministered with and worked with and I've seen life just turn so tough on them I've seen the bitterness that they tasted the gall as it filled their mouths and their souls but I've also seen how God would take those Job like individuals and use them personally in to to Make a difference for the kingdom. To turn it to joy. Leslie, I was thinking this week about many years ago at a little place called Blue Springs, Mississippi. If you go through there, you'll see a Toyota plant now. Back in the day when I was leading music and leading the youth at that little church, uh, we had not even thought of a Toyota plant a Toyota didn't even drive through Blue Springs, Mississippi most of the days. I was leading the youth and music there in that little church. I was probably about 17. Again, I have no idea why they would do something like this. They would call such a young guy, but I was probably around 17. I didn't go back and look up the year, but something like that. And I was there on Wednesday night. We were having our Wednesday night worship time. And uh, I was speaking and doing all those kinds of things. And just about that time, 
somebody came to the door and they, they motioned. I kind of stopped what I was doing because I knew something was serious. And I went to the door and they said, um, Reggie, some guys just came into the church sanctuary where we were having a prayer meeting. And they asked us to, like, get all of the guys we could together and get to Freddie's house because Freddie's trapped under a tractor. And they're needing as many people as they can to get there. It was only about three minutes away from the church, and people just, of course, you know, got up and had run out. And I had stayed there because um, Freddie's son, Jesse, was in my youth group. And I knew this was going to be a difficult time, or no matter what. And he had a younger uh, daughter, of course, Freddie did, and was in the children's department. They got there, and they came back just a bit. Some of them did as they came. And Freddie had passed under that tractor that night. He was a young man, obviously, again, have had a young youth, young child in the children's program. And, of course, we gathered around Jesse, and we prayed with him. I still remember this. It's been, what, I don't know, 35 years now or so. Oh, am I not that old? Hold on just a minute. 25 years. Oh, thank you, God. I'm not as old as Jason. I hadn't been as old as Jason. But uh, um, we prayed with him, and then, of course, that week, it was just unbelievably tough. And again, there have been tough times in churches' lives that I've served, very similar to this, over and over. And you think, God why, and God how, and God these kids, and God this, and God that. And I'll, I'll be honest, I had all kinds of questions. I still have all kinds of questions when things happen. Like, God, give me some type of wisdom through this and discernment through this and all that. And I remember coming to Freddie's service, and they had asked me to sing. It's one of those songs I used to sing all the time. They had put the cassette tape in, and they had tell me to sing. That's how, so maybe it has been 35 years after they put, the, they put it in. They told me to sing. We had an invitation. Freddie's service. Invitation. That doesn't always happen at funerals. But they had decided that the gospel needed to be preached. The gospel needed to be shared. And there were some people in Freddie's family that needed to know the Lord. And we did. We gave an invitation. Several responded. Now, I know some of you, I was concerned. How about the emotional aspect of this and this and this? Several responded, gave their lives to Christ, and are still serving. That's how you know, right? That took root. They're still serving. I look back at that time and I say, God, I don't know. I don't know why this happened here or why this was like this. But God, thank you. Thank you that you can take one of the worst tragedies this church had ever seen, this church had ever known, and thank you that you can work it out for your own salvation your way. I was 17 or so. And I determined then, if God can do that here, God can do it, God can do it anywhere. When I look at Ruth, when I look at Job, I'm reminded our God works through desperate situations. Well, I better move on. 
to the second point. I know we only have just a little bit of time left, but I haven't turned over the new leaf of preaching short sermons yet. That'll start next week. All right? I want you to know that God is at work in dark days to fulfill his plan for his people. Now, some of you say, well, that's basically the same truth. No, no, no. Listen to what I say. The first truth is that God can work in desperate situations to fulfill his plan for you and for me. Now, you say, well, that we're his people. I know, but I'm talking about a personal level. God is concerned about your family. He's concerned about who you are, and he works there in you personally. But what I see also in this passage is not that God is just concerned with your family or you personally. God is also concerned about the collective people that he will refer to as his children. He's concerned about us. And even in the dark days of the collective existence of his people, God is at work. Don't forget the setting of the book of Ruth. The setting is what? The time of the judges. That's the way it started out. The time of the judges. Again, those of you who are biblical historians, you'll remember the time of the judges. It was a morally reprehensible time in the life of Israel. It says that the people did what was right in their own eyes. So that means that there was relativism everywhere. Oh, you know, there's no absolute truth. Whatever you want to believe, that's fine, whatever. And th this was kind of the culture. And it's like you just do whatever you want to do. Well, when you do whatever you want to do, you get chaos. When you do whatever you want to do, you follow your heart, you will find yourself in a morally reprehensible society. When there is no absolute truth and you determine it for yourself, then you've allowed pride to lead you into areas you never would have thought possible. It was a dark time. I mean, you look at the book of Judges, and yes, when you read the book of Judges, you'll see God will raise up a judge, and you'll also see oftentimes how imperfect that judge is. Think of Samson for a moment. Even in those days, God will use those individuals and he'll lead them. But overall, it's just, I mean, it's just a cesspool of wickedness and evil. When you look at the book of Judges, you would probably be thinking to yourself, where is God? How could God be working in the nation's life when it's this bad? And then you turn to the book of Ruth. In the book of Ruth, it says... God is plotting and planning in his own way through this family to give us a guy named David, King David. So even in the time of the judges, God was working. Oh, we know this. What? God, God worked even before the creation of time. He knew what he was going to do on our behalf. But especially for the nation of Israel, here he is in the desperate, dark moments working for the benefit and the good of his people. I kind of need to know that today. I kind of need to know that. Because there are times I look around me and I'm like, it is dark. And look around our next, it is dark. I turn on the television a little bit and I get so frustrated. 
I was out this week in the woods, uh, as you should be during the holiday season. And I was with somebody, and they said, you know what? I just got where I don't even watch this TV at, at night, just certain things. I agree with them a lot of times, but they work me up so much. I said, yeah, you can get worked up quickly. You can get worked up quickly because you see the darkness around you. But folks, you and I need to be reminded that even in the dark days, in the dark days, of his peoples, uh, us in a society, God's still working. You about to go into a new year. I said a moment ago, you and I need to know that God's going to fulfill his agenda. That God's still got a plan for his people. His people, his people. Now listen to me. I say this respectfully. His people are not necessarily Americans. His people are the people who have surrender their lives to him his people are those we call the church the church that is here in america the church that is around this globe and the bible says that the gates of hades will not prevail against his people ever ever and you and i need to know that the church while it may be in a turbulent time while things may be pushing against us when the culture itself is coming against us that we have a god who is working on our behalf and even though people are questioning the truth and all those kind of things today, you and I know that there is a truth and there is a God who is marching for the truth and there is a God who will sustain us in the truth. Because God is at work even in dark days. The time of the judges, David, David. David will be the measuring stick for every other king that comes. Now some of you say, yeah, but you know David and... What he did, yes, I know David had his own issues, but if you look at, if you look at the record of the kings, if you look at the record of the chronicles, you will see that every king is measured by King David. Whether or not he did right or he did wrong, David, because David was like the measuring stick. And if you go over to Israel now, you go into Jerusalem and the areas around, guess what? You'll see David's name everywhere. Still to this day. And what was God doing? God was giving them a king. Because in the book of Judges it says, they did what was right in their own eyes because there was no king in Israel. God was going to give them somebody, a leader, that would stand for them and help them nationally. And for you and I, we need to know that God works in dark days even for his people. He works, he works to fulfill the collective will the collective plan for his people it means you and me. So as I go forth into 2020, we're going to talk about some goals. I'm beyond pumped about the goals and excited that we hope to be able to reach as a church and as a people here at Temple beginning. I'll share those with you like January the 12th. I'm still going to preach next week. But I know some of you are going to still be out and around. So the 12th, I'm going to preach. I'm going to give you goals. Isn't that right? The 12th. And then after that, you can go down to the national championship if you want to. New Orleans, all right? If you want to do that, Christmas done come early for some of you all. Well, actually a little late, actually, but it's still early for you next year. I want to give you the third truth real quickly. 
When I look at this passage, I see that God is at work in desperate situations to fulfill His plan for you and for me personally. I see our God is at work in dark days to fulfill His plan for His people collectively, His people. In this case, the nation of Israel. In case of us today, the church, the people of God. And this third truth is this. God is at work in discarded lives. In discarded lives to fulfill his plan for the world itself. What do you mean by this? Think of how Naomi and Ruth have really been discarded by society. I mean, you would... If this book were not here right now and we weren't reading about it, not many of us would probably be like, oh yeah, Ruth, Naomi. It just been discarded lives in history. And there are a lot of people who have gone on before us that we would never know their name, never know anything necessarily about them. Uh, let's see, I think I know on my Bridges side, I know my grandfather. I know my great-grandfather's name. I can't tell you my great-great-grandfather's name. My, really, my great-grandfather, I can't tell you anything about much. The things I've heard, I wouldn't want to tell you about. So, they're just lives that are littered throughout history. And yet, God uses discarded lives. In this case, Naomi and Ruth, he uses these individuals to bring forth the ultimate birth of his son, Jesus. Oh, yeah. You read through that royal genealogy? It says here, this is how we got to David. Don't forget that in the New Testament... We are told how we get to Jesus. He connects the dots for us. Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1, verse 5, it even gives it to us explicitly, specifically. Matthew 1, 5, Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab. Boaz begot Obed by Ruth. Obed begot Jesse, and of course, and then verse 6, it says, Jesse begot David the king. You think to yourself, those begots of the Scripture, those are not the things that really tantalize my spiritual exercises. Usually when I think of the begots, I want to kind of just begot them away, you know? But here you're reminded, the story of Ruth, the love story there, takes us all the way to Jesus and the love story that Jesus has with his church and his people. All the way. Oh, Matthew. He was writing to a predominantly Jewish Christian audience. So he was writing to these people that had come out of Judaism and they had given themselves to Christ. And that is the reason Matthew, always, he will really begin his genealogy with like Abraham because showing that he is the promised Messiah of the nation. But Matthew lists four women. I got to preach this one. I actually preached it a few years ago, but 
I can tell most of you don't remember. And I'm going to probably come back and preach it again. But four women, Matthew will list. Usually you don't list the women in the genealogies of the Scripture just because they're following through the father's side. But there are, there are four. Rahab, who, well, even before that, Tamar in verse 3, Tamar, who had played the role of a prostitute in order to further her family. If you go back and read like Genesis 38. And then, of course, uh, Rahab, who, I don't know if you caught this or not, was the mama of Boaz. Rahab, the prostitute in Canaan that allowed the spies cover and safety. Rahab. Then you've got Ruth, the Moabitess, who is from outside of the nation. And then the last one, if you read on down through here, it doesn't even give you her name. It just says, the wife of Uriah, who is Bathsheba. Isn't it amazing that Matthew just included those four names? (laughs) Again, those might be some of the ones you would leave out of the genealogy. Because of their activities. But what does it say to us? It says to us that God was bringing salvation even into the world. Through the, through the Israelite king, Messiah, Jesus. He was bringing all people. Moabites, Canaanites, others into the family. Even those, again, who were discarded lives. Discarded who had been through, God was bringing in. And he was fulfilling salvation ultimately through Jesus. I said last week, I say again, that when you read the scripture, you've always got to read it in lines of God's salvific work as he was bringing Jesus on our behalf. And what was God doing here? God was working in these discarded lives to fulfill his plan for the world. What was his plan for the world? Well, remember, he had said to Abraham, I'm going to bless the world through your seed, through the generations to come. And yes, there are a lot of blessings that Israel brought, but there is no other blessing for the world like Jesus. Jesus was the ultimate blessing. And the Bible teaches us that if we come to him and we say, God, we know we've sinned, we know we've fallen short of the glory of God, we're outsiders, we're kind of like... The Moabitess, Ruth, we're kind of, well, Lord, we've done some bad things like Rahab and Tamar and maybe even Bathsheba. We've done some bad things in our lives because all have fallen short of the glory of God. If we come to him and say, God, we're, we recognize all that, but God, we are sorry. We repent of our sins. We turn from our ways. We trust you with everything we have. We give our lives to you. We surrender and commit. Guess what? Salvation comes to our heart at that moment, and we can know him in a wonderful, joyful relationship. And even through the tough times, we know that our hope is still in him. Because God, get this. According to the book of Ruth, God was working some 3,200, 3,400 years ago for your salvation right now. Of course, I could go back again and know it was even before creation of time God was working. But he's been working so that you can know your salvation so that you could give your life to him.
Folks, before we take this Lord's Supper, I just ask you, have you given your life to Christ? Have you trusted Him? God loves you, and He wants to see you saved in His family. I'm going to be down here in a moment. I can help you. I can lead you. Those of us who are saved, those of us who are saved, before we take the Lord's Supper, would this not be a good time to hear what Paul would say of examining who we are? Because if God loved us so much all the way back then to plot for our salvation, then doesn't he deserve our commitment and life and blessing? Doesn't he deserve our full devotion to him? Would we not examine ourselves and give ourselves to full worship and to praise before him? Because the royal genealogy that we have in the book of Ruth reminds us God is at work. He always is. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you, and Lord, I pray right now for those who are lost in this place that you would bring them to salvation. God, how to end this year. God, how to begin a new year to know that we can walk in love, in a love relationship with you. God, I pray that you would just save that one which needs to be saved. God, I pray for those of us who are saved that we'd examine ourselves now before we take of the Lord's Supper and that we would worship you and commit ourselves afresh and anew to you right now knowing that you are working not to make us bitter, but you're working to make us better through your Son, the Lord Jesus. God, we praise you. We pray now that you would just work through this moment of commitment. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand?